Hello, I'm Sally Ennis, and on this episode of the Game Creativity Podcast, I'll be talking about all things virtual reality and augmented reality, and more specifically, the ethics of using these VR and AR games and what it may look like in the future. And I'll be focusing in on four different areas of ethics. And then after I go through the the ethics of everything, um, I'm going to talk about the what the current regulations are and kind of the struggle that there is to be able to put standards and regulations in place for these game developers of virtual reality and all the different things that have to be uh, taken into consideration. And then lastly, we'll hear from a professor talking about uh, the potential of emerging technology and more specific, more specifically the ethic, the ethics that will emerge from this virtual reality. So when thinking about these ethical questions, I'm going to mainly focus on four different areas. And so the four that I'm going to focus on will be human rights and whether that is uh, the discussion of security and your data protection or data sharing uh, when using virtual reality. Um, and then responsibility, which could kind of relate more um, at the end of the podcast when I'm talk- going to talk about regulations and the standards that we can try and put in place uh, for the future. Um, And then also a big one is the mentality. And this has definitely come up in the news and been a discussion uh, already and kind of focusing more on the violence and tolerance to what the virtual reality would be, whether it is your actual health and the issues of it causing nausea, um, the accessibility for uh, different types of users, the trauma through this violence and kind of how this will be able to shape your state of mind in a different way because if you become numb to different things or you get too far into the world of virtual reality you can't really distinguish between the two um and then lastly i'll talk about uh, morality and for this i'm mainly going to focus on uh, children and what the impact may be on children and how we kind of need to focus and center around how this might impact um, children in the future. And then also just the overall culture and experience that people view these video games and how they would go about using them in the future and how it might be uh, both good and bad for society today. I wanna start out with the uh, focusing on the human rights and more specifically privacy and security uh, within virtual reality. And so starting off, it is definitely no secret that there are a lot of security and privacy concerns that arise when we talk about virtual reality. And so definitely this means that in a virtual reality world, there's a big concern about where we should draw the line and how to properly disclose information in a safe way that will make it so the user is still feeling comfortable in their virtual world. And so these need to be set in place and enforced uh, definitely very soon and before it becomes extremely popular and because there could be some backlash for example in 2020 oculus announced that all of their users had to create a facebook account um, which facebook is the owner of oculus and this means that the requirement will immediately share the user's biometric data potentially to a third party and through the use of uh, facebook's true identity concept, which is already controversial, it would mean that some people, whether they're in a different country or 
they identify as something that they are not ready to really share, they might not be able to be their true selves um, in this world just because they will be linked to a Facebook account. Kind of shifting gears along the lines of privacy and security, uh, we definitely tap more into the emotional aspects of privacy as um, some technologies are actually being developed that use um, eye tracking, which would make it so they would be able to track obviously where you would look and everywhere like that. And so if this information is actually shared with other companies or analyzed, uh, it could definitely lead to some companies being able to better predict your lifestyle patterns or even your emotional responses. And that's very worrisome. So along these lines of privacy, there definitely are, I could go on and on about it um, because there's so many different aspects that are concerning, but there definitely needs to be a set in stone uh, policy just to try and make sure the data collection and data sharing is fully known to the user uh, and in a safe and comfortable way. Moving on, the general nature of virtual reality is meant to be fully immersive. So naturally, the experiences are becoming more and more like the real world. So concerns about the effects of violence are becoming uh, even more prevalent than they are already. Uh, in February of last year, the American Psychological Association stated that there is an association between uh, video games and aggressive behavior, but not a conclusive statement about violent behavior. However, this may not be the same for virtual reality as it, it makes it feel like you're actually in the situation. Uh, there has been research done at Johannes Gutenberg University, uh, and it's, they state that with it being a fully immersive, uh, fully immersive technology, virtual reality will most likely lead to minor or, for certain people, for the extreme, major forms of depersonalization, meaning that your physical body will not feel like your body anymore as you become so wrapped up in that virtual world that you've been playing in. And there was actually one user that um, played a game where he did the killing of somebody on the virtual reality, and then afterwards he noted that he actually had to take a step back because it just seemed too real and it was out of, it was out of his comfort zone and not something that he wanted to use again. And so this also leads into the discussion of where to draw the line um, and what types of games should be produced for virtual reality. So maybe the way to avoid this is either definitely altering the ratings because there's a study done that said that uh, the ratings on a normal video game definitely do not transfer over to how you would rate a virtual reality game. Or it could also just be maybe in virtual reality there just aren't those shooter games or kind of games like that. They're more of experiences and exploring. So what's interesting is that there's actually two different types of ethics. There's the actual ethics in the development, which is kind of more in the design aspect. And then there's ethics within the actual execution of the games and when the users are actually playing them. And so in the design itself, uh, using ethics actually has a term and it's called the anticipatory technology ethics and then also responsible research and innovation. And so these ethics and design include a wider long-term view, um, taking into account social involvement and the environmental impacts of the design of the, these virtual reality worlds. And so there's definitely a fine line between the ethics as there's a difference in, uh, in the actual foreseeable use and the intended use. And so the developers need to create a space 
that is following the intended use, but also being able to manage what the potential reactions are and the other uses may be from their game. And so obviously, since virtual reality is still a developing technology, there are not any current standards or a traditional way to design and manufacture these experiences. Uh, and so this definitely makes it so there are different design pathways. And these design pathways are essentially the way that they are developed and then the actual different applications of the virtual reality. And this is can be whether it is the use of the game itself, uh, the internal interface, or the uh, people that they aim to use their technology. And so in the design process, there's there are more guidelines that need to be created for virtual reality than there would be in a normal video game that we have today, uh, just because there are additional risks, such as what we've already talked about, the manipulation of the mind or exposure to certain situations that may uh, cause societal impacts. And so one potential solution uh, definitely not the only one, but it could be to use for the developers to always adapt a value-sensitive approach. And so this will be able to account for the different uh, risks, both in society and individually. And in addition, to be, uh, to use warning signs in the games, uh, potential age restriction software, or um, in-depth game ratings to be able to give the user a better understanding of what the risks and how intense the game is. And so now I have a special guest joining us today to talk a little bit more about uh, ethics and virtual reality. And so do we want to just start off by you introducing yourself a little bit? Sure thing. Uh, so I'm Jeremy Weissman. Uh, I have a PhD in philosophy. I am currently the uh, MUD ethics postdoc at the Roger Mudd Center for Ethics here at Washington and Lee. And my focus is on the ethics of emerging technologies. I have special focus on information technologies, in particular things like social media and smartphones and privacy issues related to that. I have a, a new book out called The Crowdsource Panopticon, Conformity and Control on Social Media that was just published a couple months ago in uh, February 2021. Uh, so that's a little bit about me. I'm very interested in virtual reality, so I appreciate being invited to talk on your podcast. Yes, of course. Well, thank you so much for being here with me. Um, and so we're just going to start off pretty generally and uh, a broad question. So what do you think the most pressing ethical concern is in the moment in the world of virtual reality? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, we're still very much at the cusp of virtual reality. So the kind of the real ethical concerns haven't become apparent in the way I think they will. But for, I think we have to be concerned about the addictive potential of virtual reality. Uh, video games are, of course, very addictive. A lot of the people who work in video game developing actually draw upon psychological studies to get people purposely addicted. Uh, games, for example, that don't really have a clear end goal or, or, or can be defeated just kind of go on and on and on. So I think you already you have potential problems with virtual reality and addiction, and or sorry, with video games and addiction, potential issues where it's disruptive in a way that can be problematic. I think in particular, something like Fortnite. Lots of parents, for example, talk about how it's very disruptive to their, you know, the balance in their household. Kids don't really want to hang out in person after class. Maybe that's not a bad thing. Uh, we could talk about that later. But they go home and immediately play it from their separate, you know, consoles. They play Fortnite. So already you have this kind of foundation where video games are addictive, where they're kind of potentially disrupting things that are, are normally good in, in family life or social life. 
and video and virtual reality will just amplify that times, you know, an indefinite number. So there's a worry that people could kind of disappear into the matrix. If I don't know if you've ever seen the movie uh, Ready Player One. I have. But I feel like it's so it kind of is similar where it's in there and just go off into a separate world. And it's it's kind of making it where it's the issue of there's a fine line between if people are going to be kind of not wanting to be in the actual present world and wanting to just be in the world of virtual reality or video games. Right. And I think, the, you know, what Ready Player One depicts, you know, is a realistic concern where the world itself has become kind of degraded. It's falling apart. So everyone wants to kind of disappear into virtual reality. But that, of course, only leads to a kind of vicious cycle where the more people are detached from the real world, the worse it gets on the outside. And then the more impetus there is to bury oneself into the virtual reality. Um, now, it's not clear from the offset why spending your time in virtual reality would necessarily be somehow of less value than spending time in the real world, right? Because if you could have completely immersive virtual realities, why is that an experience that is somehow of a lesser value? Uh, but it does seem kind of intuitively that if we've sort of lost touch with the real reality, so to speak, that something of great value is lost. And the more we're kind of sucked into the machine, the greater we have that risk of losing touch with real reality. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that kind of goes into what I was going to want to talk about next. And so there's a lot of discussion going on about how to navigate the issue of children and age restrictions, uh, potentially in virtual reality. And there's talk about how it, well, it can mess with development or kind of the understanding of the world and kind of making a distinction between what is normal and real and then what is just a game or a video game. And so do you have any thoughts or any potential suggestions on how to get around this issue and how the developers may be able to go about trying to minimize altering the children's development? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, my intuition is that they will need to take age restriction much more seriously in video games than they do today. So at least when I was growing up, age restriction for movies was fairly well guarded. You know, I couldn't go to an R-rated movie as a 12-year-old. I had to get past the ticket counter. They're not going to let me in unless my parents were there to escort yeah. <laughs> me into the theater. And that's still the case today. So there you had a pretty good control mechanism. You could say the same thing about video games today in that you could say, well, if parents are buying you know r-rated or x-rated whatever video games for their kids the kid the parents should be acting as the guardian in some sort of sense but uh you know that that's the gatekeeper but it doesn't work all that well because then someone else's parents will buy the game for the kid and everyone will you know right now there's there's not really good uh you know age restrictions on the internet and a lot of the impetus is put on to parents to kind of have this wisdom to be able to put on parental controls and do all this kind of stuff and so they're kind of the video game developers pass the buck to the parents. Well, if, if the kid gets access to this game that's totally inappropriate for them, um, that is on the parents. But I think that the video game developers themselves are going to need to do a little bit more to come up with some sort of system to verify age. Because, you know, it's one thing to play Grand Theft Auto 1, which I can actually remember because I'm that old. <laughs> I can remember being a teenager and playing Grand Theft Auto 1 which was basically, you know, it looked like stick figures at best, right? Uh, even that seemed to kind of increase ag aggression in my, I think, 16-year-old self or whatever. <laughs> but you can only imagine, you know, a 12-year-old growing up in some future where they're in some hyper-realistic 
virtual reality environment, uh, like some you know future iteration of Grand Theft Auto, where they're spending all their time doing the kind of horrible, violent things you can do in Grand Theft Auto. That seems at least problematic and something that we wouldn't necessarily want to have no control over. And yet, you know, if there's, I think if, if the video game developers put too much onus on the parents to say they have to have, you know, they need to know all this technology, they need to keep watch over the kids. That I think that's important. Yes, that's part of it. But I do think that they need to take responsibility themselves and say, you know, we can't just have a website that says, click, are you over 18? That's not going to work. So there yeah, needs to be I, something more robust than that. Yeah, I can kind of leads more into more of a privacy situation almost. And that privacy definitely is, I think, a large, could be a large issue within these video games and kind of the data sharing and so, like collection. Um, so do you think that, how do you think that the developers or just the companies of the virtual reality experiences, how do you think that they should go about the data sharing and collection without making it so the consumers and the users of the games still feel like they can be in their own world and experience it just like a normal person, but then not be worried about it being their all of their information and potentially personal lives being shared? Yes. So good question. Uh, privacy issues, I think, become especially relevant with virtual reality. Because already you have kind of a model in Silicon Valley where everything, as you, you were saying, is collected. Any piece of data that they can get from your act. But in virtual reality, again, now everything you do will be data. You know, you turn your head in virtual reality, it's data. You know, where you look, that's data. Every single thing is, of course, by nature, data because it's, it's that's, you know, all, everything's virtual, everything is electronic. So every single thing you do will be data. So the amount of data that, that, you know, video game developers will have from your, you know, virtual reality playing, or not just video game developers, because virtual reality, we're talking about video games, but it'll be used for everything, video conferencing, you know, I would imagine in the future, there'll be less Zoom, more virtual reality, for example. So the issue of data collection becomes more and more uh, uh, of a serious issue as we go into a place where more and more of our behavior can be turned into data that can then be used uh, to manipulate us in some way. Uh, so I think we really need a kind of revolution in the model that we're using or is being used in Silicon Valley right now. Uh, there's a great book by Shoshana Zuboff called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. It's quite a lengthy tome, but I recommend everyone reading it because it really does point to this future where you understand that the amount of power these companies have by having this much data on people is threatens really democracy. It threatens individual liberty. Um, and we need to, to really rethink this kind of model where we just hand over all this information to these companies and they give us something for free in return. But the bottom line is the current uh, model of this kind of that everything you do is turned into data that's then sold to companies essentially to manipulate behavior. It's just got to go. We can't keep operating that paradigm as we move further and further into a future where more and more of our behavior can be turned into data. And in virtual reality, you know, that's to an extreme because as I mentioned, everything can be turned into data. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely scary because I know sometimes I don't even have my phone near me. It's just sitting on a table and then I'm talking with someone about what I want for dinner or I mention something. And then next thing I know, there's somehow there's an ad on 
any of my social media and I'm just like, oh, wow. Okay. I just, I was just talking about that. So it's definitely needs to be a shift. Um, and kind of going in the data, staying in privacy and everything like that, but then also just going in general to any of the ethical concerns brought up by virtual reality. Do you think that there will, there will ever be laws put in place or to try and avoid some of these ethical concerns? Or do you think that it'll be more of kind of like a set of guidelines or a process that the developers need to follow to try and ensure a lesser of ethical issues? Yeah, great question. So uh, certainly there will be guidelines. There's already kind of guidelines that are being developed and put into place. Uh, it's kind of soft law, we might say, codes of conduct, things like that. Um, and I think that's, that is really important. Though on the other hand, that's very much, I think, what the industry wants. I think they really are, don't want to be regulated by, you know, government policies, hard law, where they could pay real penalties. And, you know, there's, there's something to be said for relying on this kind of soft law, which is that, you know, if things are too, you know, the industry moves faster than the law sometimes can keep up, let's say. And that, that's bad in that uh, sometimes that leaves them wildly unregulated and, and able to do things that can be really dangerous for society. On the other hand, you might say that, you know, it allows for a kind of flexibility in their work where they're not sort of, they don't have a, a, a policy officer of some sort, I don't know if police officer would be a word, but, you know, some sort of, you know, telling them you can't do this, you can't do that and stifling their work in some sort of way. So there's something to be said for trying to have these kind of self-regulation, these codes of conduct. And I think those are really important. But in my opinion, it needs to go beyond that. I do think we need to take law regulating these tech companies, especially when we get to stuff like virtual reality that can be so absorbing of our time, so absorbing of our minds, so absorbing of our data. We really will need to regulate these things with hard law through policy in Congress. Um, and that's something that's going to require a few things. One, it's going to require a public that is more informed, a voting base that is more aware of these things that are going on, a voting base that's more activist on these things where we don't just kind of accept that tech companies can, you know, listen in our conversations and say, well, we just feel defeated. We have to stand up and say, no, they can't do these things uh, because these, these technologies are so incorporated into our lives now that in many ways we don't have a choice but to engage. So that's a devil's bargain if I have to engage with these products to get along in society, but they can then, you know, take whatever they want from me and do whatever they want. We're going to have to stand up to them. And that also means getting money out of Congress because companies like Google, for example, who I'm sure will play a huge role in virtual reality and Facebook, who's already playing a huge role in virtual reality, you know, with Oculus Rift. Um, these companies have unbelievable lobbying apparatuses. They pay huge amount of money to the campaigns of congressmen. And finally, we also need, uh, you know, politicians that are more aware of how these companies work. Facebook was on trial after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which people should look up if they're not aware of. And, you know, the Congress people were asking, like, you know, how do you make money, Facebook? And Mark Zuckerberg's like, sir, we sell ads. But we really need an informed public, an activist public to make sure that we can reap the benefits of these uh, new technologies without having to sign away all our rights. Yeah, I think... I definitely think that it goes far beyond just being a tech company. I think you're 100% right. Um, and so I know I don't want to take up too much time. So yeah, just kind fun. of as a wrap up, um, where do you think that virtual reality will be in the next couple of years, either 
you can consider the ethical concerns as well or just in general? Hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, it's hard to know exactly, exactly, you know, how fast these technologies will take off. We're des- we've definitely become, you know, to the point where virtual reality is, has entered the world in a much more mainstream way. It's kind of like, uh, you know, when personal computers were first finally becoming, you know, popping up in people's homes. But to make the analogy to personal computers is to say that we are really at the beginning of virtual reality. I mean, I think that this is, uh, you know, where things are going in the future and it'll just get more and more immersive to the point where, you know, it'll be difficult to tell what's real and what's VR once you're in the system. But in the next few years, I definitely think that COVID has kind of hyper accelerated a lot of trends, in particular, something like, you know, online learning, you know, tele doctors, uh, you know, tele everything really has taken a leap forward, you know, much faster than it would have otherwise. I think, you know, the amount that we use Zoom now, for example, I think that would have happened anyways over the decade, but it's pushed it forward much quicker. And I don't think there's any going back from that, really. And so I think while, you know, Zoom is where we're at now, I think virtual reality will take the place of that increasingly and other technologies as well. But I could see, for example, you know, the future of online learning, for example, not taking place over Zoom, but taking place over virtual reality. And I, in the next few years, I don't think we're quite there. I'm not sure how long it'll take for these things to really take off. But over the course of the decade, I wouldn't be surprised that by the end of the decade, we are much more immersed in virtual reality, literally. And it plays a much bigger role in terms of our socializing, in terms of our education, and of course, in terms of our entertainment. Um, One one aspect that I I, I do think will actually... One prediction I would make for the next short-term five years is I think that lots of movie theaters will be converted to virtual reality kind of entertainment centers. I think because of COVID, again, pushing these things forward, you know, it's really killed the movie theater. Movies are now streaming online, uh, you know, over Netflix or whatever. That's the standard. I don't think there's going to be any coming back from that. And I think it's going to be a while that people feel really comfortable going into a movie theater with tons of strangers and, uh, you know, while COVID's still somewhat a thing, at least. Um, I know that a lot of the big tech, uh, sorry, big movie studios like Universal, that they're kind of in the works. They kind of see you know, movies being increasingly a VR experience. And you can see the kind of mainstream movies that are out there lend themselves to it. We've entered a superhero superhero universe. Everything's Batman and Superman, Jurassic Park, you know, 20, whatever, you know, dinosaurs. Those will all lend themselves to a kind of a VR experience, one that you still probably couldn't have at home because it would involve this big apparatus and this chair that moves around and all that kind of stuff. So in terms of one concrete, short, more short-term prediction, I would bet in five years, we see a, a number of these uh, AMCs turn into kind of a virtual reality movie experience that uh, I'd make that, that bet that's coming as well. Yeah, I think that would be really cool. Um, and so just a little wrap up, I just want to say thank you so much for being here today. I definitely think that the, the discussion was very interesting. And I think there's, obviously, we just scratched the surface and there's, a lot more that could definitely arise in the next couple of years. So thank you so much for being here today. Yes, it was, it was truly fun. I really enjoyed this. <laughs> <laughs> I think that interview was great to hear a different perspective about the ethics and which ones we really need to focus on going in the future. 
of these experiences. Uh, he mentioned the difference between soft laws and hard laws. And so there currently is actually a code of ethics, one may say, for virtual reality that acts more like soft laws, but it isn't very popular and quite a few of the developers don't necessarily follow it, um, but it does try to outline how to minimize the societal impacts. And these are do no harm, secure the experience, which means to ensure the gameplay space has no obstacles, um, be transparent about data collection, ask for permission, minimize nausea and actual health side effects, diversify representation, regulate social spaces, and create accessibility for all. Uh, and like I said earlier, there is so much more to talk about and uh, that will surface in the future as the technology and society develops more, but it is good to be aware of the potential dangers of the technology. And with all of this, uh, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I've had a really fun time and I hope you learn something about the ethics of virtual reality.